What's up, everybody? I'm TJ. And I'm Kelsey. And we are the, the Nashville, Nashville Wine Duo. Duo. Okay. okay. Here we go. Another <laughs> we podcast. Always, we always start out like this. Another one. <laughs> yes, I'm excited. We think we're going to stop doing these, but we don't. We just nope, keep, we just we keep just doing them because we, we love it. We're addicted. Yes. <laughs> well, we have a great guest on the podcast. Actually, you should tell the story of how we came across this wonderful wine and how you met Gene Arnold. The guest on, on this week's podcast is Gene Arnold, co-owner of Kate Arnold Along Wines. with his wife, yes. 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 Yeah, and you've been in the wine world for, you said, like 30 years, right? Yes. A long since, time. Yeah, since December of 93. Yeah, so I had actually got invited to a tasting that you were doing in Nashville, kind of downtownish area. I don't remember the exact location because I don't go downtown enough. That's bad. But it was a really cool building. I think it was the building that Justin Timberlake and... Um, Chris Stapleton did their music video. Yeah, there's some recording studios in there. Yeah, yeah. So it's this really cool building. And uh, my friend invited me and we got to try just a bunch of your wines. And I just remember being so like in love with them. They were just really, really good. And we got to listen to you talk and explain things. And um, I just loved listening to you talk too and how passionate you are about what you do. And so yeah, why don't you just uh, and tell so us- is this is this podcast what four hours because that's what how no long it's take. <laughs> no, no, no you're, you're good <laughs> so why don't you why don't you just dive into the from the beginning what made you fall in love with wine how did you start Kate Arnold yeah I'll I'll try and keep it short so my first introduction to wine was actually when I was in college and I have two older brothers and my brother closest to me in age Tom worked at a French restaurant and this was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So imagine a French restaurant, you know, back in the mid eighties in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And, you know, towards the end of his shift, I would go in have an appetizer, you know, drink a French wine. He would teach me something. He was very passionate about it. And so I always kept that experience close to the heart. And uh, I was a history major and believe it or not, the history club at the university of Alabama, uh, we would have meetings. And if you were old enough, we'd actually taste wine. And so that was another component. And then from there, um, I, after graduate school, uh, I was working on a master's thesis in Washington, DC. And at the time there was really no internet, right? So I kind of moved to the area where I needed to do the, and conduct the research. And I needed a job at night in order to uh, basically pay for living in DC. First restaurant I'd ever walked in uh, to ask for a job, and they liked my Southern accent. <laughs> and it was a place called the Brick Skeller. It's now closed, not because it wasn't successful, just the owners were getting older and uh, you know it was just time to move on. I think it was founded in like 1959. And so this would have been you know 93. And they served at the time about 1,200 different beers under one roof. And wow. it was fascinating, guys. Wow. And what was really cool about it was the education component of it. So every Monday, and I can't remember how many Mondays in a row, but it's like from six to 10 at night, we would go through a beer class. And what was interesting, that area was in uh, DuPont Circle. So you're right there around Embassy Row. So you'd have all these dignitaries come in from all these countries and they'd want to drink their beer. Wow. And long story short, they created this environment of education. And so that kind of piqued my curiosity. So here's wine, here's beer. And um, you know, from there, I uh, moved to Atlanta, Georgia, took a job in uh, what I went to graduate school in, which is historic preservation, restored old houses. 
and um, needed to pay some student loans. And I was like, gosh, you know, I really enjoy the, the beverage world, if you will. Friend of a friend owned a distributor. Next thing I know, I'm in Greenville, South Carolina, selling wine uh, spirits for a distributor. Did that for roughly about uh, 18 months, moved the sister company in um, Columbia, South Carolina, and worked and called solely on restaurants. And then from there, I was picked up by E&J Gallo Winery. So I, I managed mm-hmm. kind of the Vanguard division at the time it was called in uh, North Carolina. So based out of uh, kind of Chapel Hill area, did that for like 16 months, moved to Charleston, South Carolina, managed North and South Carolina. Um, and from there, I moved to Stockholm, Sweden, and I managed Iceland, Norway, Finland, and Sweden. And I, I can't remember exactly. I want to say it was about two and a half years, maybe three years. Awesome time. And that's where I really got this whole introduction to, I started working with winemakers. There was a winemaker, because I always love to tell the story, and then I'll finish my history. This fellow named uh, uh, George Thukas, who I think for roughly 40 years was the master winemaker at Gallo. Sweetest man in the world, PhD from UC Davis, brilliant. Always had a cigar in his mouth. (laughs) And I would spend a lot of time with him overseas uh, talking about wine, and he really started to kind of educate me on how wine should be made. And he was very, and I mean this in a good way, very old school in that thought process. And we would spend time with uh, journalists. So I really started to get exposed to um, uh, being an entrepreneur because when you work for a large company that's domestically based, when you're overseas, you don't have the same infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So like I'm helping write back label copy. I'm ordering the containers of wine. I'm doing all that. So really just piqued my curiosity. So then I moved to uh, Germany and I was there for about 18 months and I helped manage the fine wine program for Gala for all of Europe. And what was so exciting about that is, is I got to travel all of Europe and, you know, the wine culture over there, it's just part of everyday life. Right. And it's cool to drink wine out of a uh, juice glass. It's cool to dilute and give your kid a little bit of wine for dinner. Yeah. You, know, yeah, you guys know, I don't have to tell you. Came back and I worked as a regional director for uh, Gallo for uh, the Carolinas and the Virginias. Met my wife, Katie. Uh, met her in Charleston at a drive-by truckers concert. What? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. Um, well, you know, when truckers. you live in Europe and you live in Sweden, I like Swedish uh, music and I like all the other music that's played in Europe, but I just wanted some good kind of, you know, good old Good old boy music, if yeah. you will. And I'm from Alabama, and so, yeah, I like the drive-by truckers. But uh, anyway, um, I had the opportunity to move to Modesto, California, to go into marketing. And uh, Katie and I had just had our daughter, Leela, who's now uh, 17. And I didn't want to move the family every couple of years. You know, my father did that for me, and I wanted to do it for my family and for our daughter. And so I took a job as a national sales manager, as I like to say, of nothing. It was a new kind of startup division for um, the Sebastiani family, Don Sebastiani and Sons. And the brand that we started was a brand called Lee's Fitch, which had pretty good presence here in uh, the Nashville area. And we took it from zero. It was almost 200,000 cases in three years. And so it was my MBA of distribution because I would have to go to each market and go and seek out distributors. And so that was another piece of my education and training. Long story short, kind of go through the corporate wine world. I retire as SVP of sales and marketing for Don Sebastiani and Sons in what, January, February of 2016. And then the next step that got me to this is I consulted for small artisanal wineries and distributors. And we saved $100,000 and that's how we started the company. I can't believe how you went from like 
That's insane. Yeah, I what mean, if, I, that was probably far too long. No, no, like, no. It, it wasn't so... too long. It's just crazy to see like the progression of like how you started like just interested in this beer class and then how that evolved to like all of that. Like that's awesome. Well, you know, I love history, right? Yeah. And the wine spirit world, beer world for that matter, is full of history and there's so many stories there. And I, I just really appreciate that. I think it's such an opportunity to, if you look at it contextually, you know, why did this wine come about? Right. Right. Why did this production technique come about? And to me, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, I could do it all day long and talk about it all day long. Well, and I can tell too, like you're, I just, for, just from talking to you, like you're a very hardworking driven person that really cares about what you're doing. Yeah. And I'm sure all these people just saw that every part of the way. And they're like, we got to have this guy because yeah. this guy cares and he's going to, no, I do care. And he's really going to be a, he's going to push this. He's going to be a great person to work with. Yeah. So yeah, I love, I love when I see the good guys oh, come yeah. on top. You know, I, it, <laughs> in fact, I have so much passion. Do you guys have a seatbelt for this band? <laughs> oh. um, well, why don't we uh, try one of these first wines that you brought? Well, I got a Sauvignon Blanc here and you can tell us about it. Um, and then we'll, yeah, we'll try it. Yeah. So Katie and I uh, buy, buy fruit in three different states. So California, Oregon, and Washington. So that complicates it in terms of production, but where it does, I think, benefit the consumer is we're looking for the best sourcing for that particular varietal. And, you know, Lake County is just North of Napa and Sonoma. Love the Sauvignon Blanc that comes out of, out of uh, Lake County. And as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, I love some of the aromatics that come out of it. So this is hundred percent Sauvignon Blanc. Um, the majority of this wine is grown by the Mortson family and the Mortson family has been in the dry Creek Valley of Sonoma for, Oh goodness gracious, probably over 60 years at this point. And uh, they also have property in Lake and they do the right thing in the vineyard. And that's, what's most important to me. And what also is very important to me. And, you know, we talked earlier about uh, consumer labeling, nutritional labeling is the wines really made uh, with simplicity in mind to be a reflection of the vineyard. And so with that being said, I always, with the exception of Cabernet, I like our wines to be 100% varietal. So this is 100% Sauvignon Blanc, as I mentioned. Um, it does have some lees contact, right? So the dead yeast, that mm -hmm. rounds out the mouthfeel a little bit. There's no sugar added to it, which is important to me as well. There's other ways to make wine. You don't have to add sugar. And the pH structure, I think on this wine is probably like 3.35. So it has a nice acid base. Mm -hmm. And what I love about it is, and I brought this one intentionally, is I was doing tastings this week in Nashville. There's still just a little bit of remainder of the 21 vintage. You know, we're shipping 22. And because it's made with a simplicity and it's not manipulated, it really stands up really well in the glass. Mm. It's got a beautiful nose on it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes mm. aromatics in the nose will dissipate as the wine ages. I mean, it'll all evolve, but I think there's still a beautiful aromatic to this yeah, wine. Yeah, mm. definitely. So good. Yes, this is my kind of Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> yeah, I think Love that pe people have become so obsessed with, like, the New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs. And I'm, I'm not, like, dogging that or anything, you know. But I do think, like... I don't know why that's – maybe you could allude more to, like, why that's kind of, like, everyone's just going for that. But sometimes it can be a little bit too, like, grassy, like, zesty for me. And I like it to be a little bit more chill. And I think this is, like, 
you know, you're not getting so much of those like strong, like hit you. And that's not always bad if that's what you're in the mood for, but I kind of like my white to be a little bit more subtle. As do I. Yeah. I, th- I think we've lost subtlety in a lot of winemaking. Um, that's why I like a lot of European, like, you know, just everyday Italian white, for example. Mm-hmm. I love Alvarino from Spain. Beautiful. Um, you know, long story short, uh, within the wine world, and it's, it's based off of degree days, there's a region one to region five. Five is the warmest right climate. One is the coldest. And New Zealand's more on that one, probably almost sub one. So it's very cold. Therefore, you have acid structure, right? Because as you get into the warmer climates where you're getting to five, you're getting more uh, like sugar production, less, less acid. And so, you know, I always joke and they are very popular, but I don't want a wine with too much acid because why do I want to be served a plate of Tums mm. when I'm served with my wine? Right. Yeah. And so I do think that uh, for me, I understand why the consumer likes it because there's a lot of great wines that come out of mm-hmm. uh, New Zealand, but I like more of the subtle. Uh, and I think uh, Lake County is a good place for that. Yeah. yeah. No, this is amazing. So good. This is great. Not overcropped. And, you know, so there's not a lot of pyrazines in it. Um, so m- meaning, you know, you don't get a lot of that vegetable quality. And, you know, as you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon should have a little bit of vegetable quality. Yeah. I'm great with that. Yeah. I just don't want it to overpower it. Right. right. Yeah. What um so what would you like to pair it with usually? Well, I mean for for this, I mean anything that has a you know a vegetable base to it. I mean you could do this with a quiche, you could do it with any type of salad, kind of depends on the dressing, right? Mm. But you know, the, and I'm not a chef. I I don't play one on TV. But <laughs> but with that being said, you know, it's kind of fats and acids, right? Yeah. So, you know, if you have a fatty based um uh, dressing, which more often not it was going to be, you know, there'd be some nice acid from this Sauvignon Blanc that could cut through it. So there's right. kind of that contrast mm-hmm. theory, and then there's that complement theory. Yeah. yeah. So and also you, so you named this is named, named after, after your wife. wife. Like that is so romantic. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, TJ. Okay, you're gonna get your own wine. Just give me some time. <laughs> I love I'm, that. I'm, I'm dropping the mic. Okay. Now. <laughs> Thanks, Gene. Oh, uh, <laughs> by, by the way, it, have you uh, have you been waiting to ask that question? Because yeah, it was in the back of my mind. I think that that is so sweet. We have met a lot of winemakers that name the wines after their children too. Mm-hmm. But I love the wife. I think that I mean, you know. So we do have some things trademarked uh, that uh, are relevant to my my daughter, uh, daughter Leela. But yeah, for, in terms of Katie, you know, when Kate and I met, I was already in the wine industry, and it's interestingly enough. Before we met, before I moved to Europe, when I was based out of Charleston, South Carolina, we only lived about half a block away from one another. Oh, wow. And she remembers because my wife has the most incredible memory, which, you know, for me can be both good and bad. Um, (laughs) But with that being said, has the most incredible memory. She remembers being in a cigar bar in Charleston, meeting one another. And we were talking about the wine spectator because she worked at a restaurant that was known for its wine program. And so, yeah, unbeknownst to me, she had to remind me of that. And then uh, again, when I came back from Europe, you know, that's when we met, like I said, with the drive-by truckers. Um, but I like to talk about the wine industry. And I mean, it's okay to talk about yourself. I think there's too much ego mm-hmm. in the wine industry. I always joke, you know, it's fermented uh, you know, grapes. <laughs> and, you know, either you, either you like it or you don't. And we need to bring people in. We don't mm. need to exclude people. We need to invite people in and say, look, there's su- such a world of variety here. Yeah. Right. I don't tell someone how to dress. They don't tell me how to dress. And um, but in terms of Kate, I wanted to name it after her. Mm. I, I think that, 
you know, she obviously plays an integral role in, in our family. She plays an integral role in just the support of, of uh, me and the travel required and the, the crazy hours required. And the ultimate goal is, is that we would travel together as we kind of get older in the sunset and, you know, sell wine, export wine, be able to travel the world. And uh, that was many, one of many reasons or, that uh, I named it after named it after her. Mm, so That's romantic. Really cool. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, historically, because I have been doing this for 30 years, 30 years ago, this industry was dominated more often by males mm. than females. And uh, long story short, Katie and I are both uh, proponents of uh, modern female, strong female, and, you know, love the fact that we have uh, several young ladies that work in our office. And, you know, it's also Kate's a good role model for our daughter. And, you know, our daughter gets to see what we do. I mean, I, right. took, her, I took her to Washington State once for about a week, just uh, Leela and I. And all we were doing was just going around looking at vineyards. So cool. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So she's sitting her old man, you know, looking at these vineyards and then uh, tasting and spitting wine. Yep. But, uh, anyway. <laughs> Love that. So what is Katie? And yes, I, I stayed sober, by the way, while I was driving my daughter. Around, oh, so. yes. <laughs> what is Katie's kind of go-to wine these days? What is she kind of getting into and liking? Well, so it's funny. Our favorite varietal, both of us, uh, long before we would have met one another, um, is Pinot Noir. Mm. But I would also tell you she likes uh, lighter whites. In fact, the other day she goes, man, I'm really on a kick. And literally was talking about her own Sauvignon Blanc, Kate Arnold. She's like, I'm on a Kate Arnold Sauvignon Blanc <laughs> kick right now. <laughs> yeah. I love that. But you know, I also like, uh, I, I turn this on to customers all the time, like Vino Verde. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? Nice and simple. Yep. Right? A little effervescent. Yes. Yep. Right? Lower alcohol, which mm -hmm. at age 56, that works well the next day. Right. And so for us, I think the world is our, our oyster. And I had uh, one person tell me one time, cause you know, it's very common. I'm sure you all have received this question a million times is what's your favorite wine. Right. And someone told me one time when they responded to, it, they said, hopefully I haven't met it yet. And I'm like, awesome response. The thing about the wine industry, the history of it, the people in it, you know, cause I told you the joke about like, I think we're the land of misfit toys, but we've put together a really cool puzzle um, is when I was in high school, I had to run home because I was uh, not punctual on this, which surprised, but I had to have a quote for the senior yearbook. And I went home and went to my mom and dad's little library. And there was a, a quote from Will Rogers, the early 20th century humorist. And the quote, something like discontent comes in the proportion of knowledge. The more, you know, the more you realize you don't know. And to me, that's the encapsulation mm. of the wine industry. Ah, so totally. and, and so we shouldn't we shouldn't treat it as intimidating. We shouldn't treat it as in, as inviting. You know, TJ, you share with me what you know, and I'll do the same with you. And guess yeah. what? We, we three sitting here at this table all have a different base of knowledge. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I've never worked as a retailer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I maybe have a decent idea of what how it's done, but I really don't know. So share that experience with me. Right. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And, you know, if I if I don't make it into the wine business, I could be a travel agent considering how much uh, yeah. I'm Yeah, you were say. talking about your traveling yeah, it's and insane. just life on the road. I mean, you compared it to being a, a traveling musician back yeah. in the day, you know, a road dog. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. You, you have to like people um, uh, in order to, to I think, in, enjoy it. And I very much do so. And, you, you know, for me every person I meet, it's about turning them on. If I have a piece of information that I think would be valuable to them, turning them on to that particular information. But yeah, no, that number I mentioned to you over 11 years of my life in a, in a hotel is accurate. Wow. Unbelievable. 
Yeah, and it is truly, I, again, I, I'm not a musician, uh, wish I was. And, but when I was telling you, when, when I was in college, it was all about touring. That's how you made your, your name. But sometimes when I'm doing tastings, it's five people. Sometimes it's 50 people. I've done a wine dinner in, in uh, or I'm sorry, a wine presentation in, in Helsinki, Finland. And I think there were 300 people there. Wow. Right. Did one in the south of Sweden one time. The train was late, broke down. And I remember calling the account. It's a big kind of like resort area. And they're like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. You know, it's all going to be cool. It's, we're really laid back. I get there like, oh, we want a PowerPoint presentation. Oh. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, so just flying by the seat of my pants to get Man. it done. Yeah. <laughs> so is it hard when you, do you speak a lot of languages? No, I can order uh, beer and wine in about uh, 10 countries. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, that which is pretty meal. good. Uh, yeah. I would I would tell you this. I did learn a little bit of Swedish, um, and it was after two and a half years. It I was, um, I was okay, um, but I really spoke English because candidly, when most Swedish people hear you speaking English, they go straight to English because oh. you know you have to remember their their television is probably dubbed, right? And so you know it's uh, all in like subtitles, I guess it's called, and uh, so their English is phenomenal in Germany. It was different at the time. I think it's changed more so now, but I definitely learned a lot more German. Okay, because yeah. they were speaking I more. needed to transact more in German, not necessarily in business, but just more every day if I was going to the grocery store or on the train station. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. And I took four years of four or five years of, of French. So again, I can order a meal. So that's fine. Yeah, you're like. But I, I mean, for me, um, I think the one thing we should all do is remember when you're in a different country and English is not the language. If you could learn just a word or two, mm. right? And, you know, whether I'm in Iceland, I learn a word or two. And for anything, it's just out of respect. Yeah, mm. like thank you. Yeah, exactly. Hello. Exactly. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, we, we're trying to plan a trip to Italy. As well you should. Yeah. Yeah, well, we haven't really, you know, we got married right before the pandemic. So we literally got married in 2019. And then all that happened and we, we had planned to go to Israel and that got canceled, right. literally like shut down. And then every trip we kept planning, it was like, okay, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And then we really wanted things to be kind of more like everyone was like, you need to go to California. He's been to California plenty of times, but I've never been. And I'm like, I just want to go when the experience is kind of more normal. Like I didn't want to go and it was like all this restrict restrictions and everything like that. So we're hoping in like within two years to go. Well, I, I strongly encourage it. And, you know, it's easy for me to spend your money, right? Um, <laughs> um, and I'm actually pretty good at spending money on a wine company. Yeah. Kate and I are. That's, that's definitely one of, uh, uh, of my interactions with Kate is, you know, I always say when you, you own a company, you almost need to give a 5% away just so someone can tell you no. Yeah. And, uh, but Katie and I have a good relationship in terms of what we talk about the business and what to do. But it's interesting. I was telling you earlier, you know, we're just on the cusp. We're about to ship our first yeah. uh, first wine to Europe and start to export only because I live there and you know still have friends there. And that to me is really what it's about is that kind of familial relationship that I've created with people over, over the, the last 30 years. But I told you I was excited about Europe because of what we have to do to change the back label because yeah. of we're, we have to have a QR code that has um, nutritional labeling and ingredients. And I think that's pretty cool. I love that. Yeah. I've actually enjoyed that when the places that we have been, they've had it and then they take you to their website and you can like read about them and everything like that. I, I think that's a new neat development. In yeah. 
Do and you, we're, I'm sorry, go ahead. Do you Jeff. think we'll ever get there in the States with having uh, nutritional facts on the back of the labels? I think at some point, uh, I don't think it's coming anytime soon is my humble suggestion. And I could be candidly very wrong. I think the consumer wants to I always tell the story when we're doing wine dinners, if you know, you and TJ are on a road trip, you stop off to get some gas and you want a power bar or something, you know, first thing, what do you do? You look at the back yeah. you look at mm-hmm. sugar content. And I want people to be able to do that in the wine industry. And I think, you know, I always joke there's cheese and there's cheese product, mm-hmm. right? Well, there's wine and then there's wine product and they're made differently. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but they're different. And, you know, we're on the wine side versus the wine product. And I think in order to empower the consumer, it needs to be done. So my, my hope is, is that for small guys and gals and uh, wineries and wine companies, if they're exporting and they have to do it already for the EU, that they'll just go ahead and apply that same um, philosophy and packaging here in the United States so the consumer can see it. And so if that does occur, TJ, then I, I think you're going to perhaps see it sooner as opposed to later, but not necessarily adopted on a mainstream yeah. basis. So, I- so if some people do it for the EU, they could just keep the same back label here in the States. Well, th- th- that, mm. that, that, I mean, there's different mandatories by country, by right. Uh, right. But the EU, um, what, what's required. And again, I'm still learning about this and we're st- literally still as, as I sit here working on this label, um, cause we're going to relabel in Europe as opposed to the United States. Cause believe it or not, it's a lot less expensive to relabel in Europe than mm. it is here in the U S. Um, but with that being said, uh, this QR code goes to a third party, uh, website. And so that's, a, as I understand, a mandate of the EU. So it can't come, I can't use it as a marketing tool. It can't go to my website. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. And then as I was mentioned to you earlier, is like if you're in Italy and there's a different mandatory there and you use the QR code, this website can translate whatever the mandatory is required in, in Italy as compared to, let's say, Sweden. Yeah. Which I think is really cool. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and this service, which I can't remember the name of, is really kind uh, and it, perhaps it's just to get people sign up, but for small uh, wineries such as uh, ours, uh, it's actually a free service. That's really cool. Wow. Yeah, it's really cool. I just feel like the more that wine companies, producers, you know, are more transparent about what they're putting into the wine, maybe it twists the arm of people that are not as excited about it. You know what I mean? Like the more transparent I could be about this is. Well, that, our wine. well the, like, I, if I could find a ghostwriter, I'd love to write a book about the wine industry and not necessarily tell secrets, but just really so the consumer, for those that are interested, could really uh, better understand, yeah. you know, how it's made, if you will, yeah. and how it's marketed and how it's sold. But I, I do think ultimately we're going to see more and more of this. And I think it's a, a good thing. And I think we owe it to the consumer. Well, I really hope so, because I honestly think that it leads to a lot of misinformation because I think that then these people take advantage of this fact. And then you have these wine companies that are showing, you know, a glass of wine with sugar being poured in and they're like, drink our wine because all other wines are made like this. And, you know, we have, they're all the sulfite talk. Like they're like, no sulfites. Like I'm not, I can't believe how many people come into Trader Joe's to buy a bottle of wine and they're like, I need sulfite for your wine. I need no sugar wine. I need keto wine, like all this stuff. Like they're just, it's misinformation. And a lot of these big companies, I, I'm not going to say that certain ones, but there are very certain ones that I see on Instagram all the time that are marketing 
And then it gives a mistrust. And then people are like, oh, well, I can only drink this wine because, you know, and if we had these labels, like people would be a lot less confused. Well, 100%. I mean, think about it at the end of the day. I think I think it's fair to say you you mentioned the term earlier about uh, food deserts. Yeah. Right? So we obviously have a challenge with that in the United States. I think it's fair to say that, you know, we're fortunate because we can sit here uh, working on this podcast and mm-hmm. taste wine and talk about wine. And um, that average consumer that has the means, they want to know where their food comes from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They want to know the source. They want to know the, the, um, the ingredients of a particular product in which they purchase. And with wine, because it's a finished product, right? The old number, and I don't know if this equates today, I really don't, but the old number was it takes two and a half pounds of grapes to make a bottle of wine. And I always tell people, you may have heard me say this, Kelsey, it's like if you go to the grocery store and buy two and a half pounds of Thompson Seedless, which is not a uh, shouldn't be a, a grape use for making wine, <laughs> but believe it or not, sometimes it is. But anyway, with that being said, there's no glass, there's no fermentation, there's no labor, there's no barrels. So that's why I want real wine costs what it does. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think we could engage the consumer by being more transparent. And I think they would be more willing uh, for those, again, of the means to purchase wines that were, were produced more in the wine style versus the wine product style. Totally. Yeah. It's good. Okay, so the other varietal that you said you actually is one of your favorites is Pinot Noir. Oh, I, by, by far, it, yeah. it, it is my favorite yeah. varietal. Yeah, and you brought this one for us to try. So why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, so this is the twenty one vintage. Um, you know, our production levels. I was telling you about earlier. You know, this is roughly about five thousand cases, and you have to make a determination. You know, do you want to grow it much longer because this wine is actually barreled down, right? So that. 5,000 cases requires 200 barrels. Love neutral oak versus brand new oak on Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is a delicate grape. If you add um, newer oak into it, you'll get either oak aromatics, and you can also get some tannin structure that's not necessarily needed in in Pinot Noir because of its delicacy. Several different vineyards in terms of sourcing. When, When we initially started sourcing, it was just about finding quality fruit, just like the theory of Lake County. But we've diversified diversified our sourcing uh, to um, a pretty strong degree in the Willamette, and that's really because of the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, I always tell people if there's a if there's a fire in the southeastern uh, side of Willamette, I have I have fruit in the northwestern side. So geographic proximity matters in terms of uh, fires. But this wine, uh, these grapes come in. I think it's six different vineyards that uh, contribute to this wine. Wine comes in, it's destemmed, uh, cold soak it maybe a day or two, uh, inoculated, open fermentation bins. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, punch downs in the morning, punch downs in the afternoon, ultimately pressed off when it's uh, fermented dry and it, relatively light pressing. Um, I think Rob does 30 PSI. Uh, barrel malolactic fermentation. This wine uh, is not fined. And I don't know if your listeners know what find is. I'm happy to explain. Yeah, you can and, explain yeah, it. Tell them. And then it, it's uh, what's referred to as rough filtered. So finding is a process where you add a protein into wine, right? Uh, proteins bind, acts like a coagulant, kind of gets rid of it, you know, if you will, any type of sediment uh, within the wine. And that's where the, the, the question always comes about vegan wine, because the proteins that are often added would be something like egg whites or isinglass, which is like fish guts, fish bladder, something like, smells really good, by the way. Um, uh, that bad joke. But it's true. <laughs> I was like, oh, it really? Maybe it does. 
good poker face. I had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah, sold yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and is and again, I don't know much about it. Just what I read, but there's actually um, uh, proteins from plants now that can be used as a fining agent. Really? So, so you can have that wine uh, be vegan as well. And then, um, you know, filtration is a mechanical process, right? So where you're putting something through a filtration pad, the more, uh, some people may agree or, or disagree with this, but my theory is, is the more you uh, filter it, the more flavor comes out, mm. right? And so this is a rough filtration where a sterile filtered wine would be, I think it's 0.45 microns is the filtration pad. This is five microns. So we, we, we get the bugs out, we get the floaters out, but it keeps the flavor mm. in. And, you know, for me, that's important. And then we'll, depending on the wine and the vintage and, and uh, you know, inventory needs, you know, roughly like 10 months in barrel. Yeah. Yeah. This PRNR is fantastic. Mm. It's very herbaceous. Yeah. I feel like. Yeah. And, you know, this is, um, you know, I, there's a couple of elders, if you will, not in terms of age, but in terms that I really respect. And George Stukas, um, that was the master winemaker at Gallo. Uh, quick story. Hold on. You're not terrified of cats, are you? No. Okay. Our cat just came out and he might come up and try to like say hi to you. So Katie and I have two cats. Okay, cool. Just, I um, just want to make sure. No, we, no, no. This is, yeah. I got to plug my cats, Gigi and Puff Rose. <laughs> so <laughs> we thought about name, creating a rosé and call it Puff Rosé. Oh, oh yeah. 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 yeah nice we already too. have the artwork. Katie's a, a killer artist, you yeah, know, just for fun. That's right? cute. Yeah. Because yeah, this is very serious of what we do, but I also, why not have a little bit of fun? Well, also Felix, our cat loves Bill Gates and you're Bill yeah. Gates' yeah. doppelganger. So you, you might get <laughs> yeah. some loving. No, absolutely. Look, I'm all about, I, I am a cat. I, I have, my wife uh, from time to time makes uh, t-shirts for me that have cats on them. Oh. Yeah. I'm, and I'm bold enough to wear them in public. I and, love that. And uh, I wear them to the office. So yeah, my employees get a kick out of it. But, you know, George Thukas, uh, the master winemaker of Gallo, I was at a restaurant with him and, um, you know, God rest his soul, such a great guy. But he brought a bottle of Hardy Burgundy, a 1.5 liter. Mm. And I think the wine was from like 1979. And I want to say it was like $1.99. I want to say that the, the price tag was still on it. So back in the late 70s, early 80s, it wasn't varietal wine. It was generic wine, right? Oh. You know, big three liter jugs. That was the majority of the um, wine consumed. And we drank this bottle in about the year 2000. So like 21 years old, right? Oh. And it was slightly past its prime, but it was still really good. And what I learned there was, is that that fruit was actually North Coast Zinfandel. Come here, kitty. <laughs> and you, you know, people at the time didn't know what this consumer didn't know what North Coast Zinfandel was. And then there's a gentleman out in Oregon that I did some consulting for that uh, you know, makes a lot of our uh, wines from Oregon, helps me make the wine, is Rob Stewart. And he's got about 40, I think about 40 vintages under his belt um, in the Willamette. And first of all, just the kindest, sweetest soul one could ever meet. Uh, great teacher, great mentor, uh, both on a personal and professional uh, uh, perspective. And I just love his winemaking philosophy. Mm. And so mm. I, I really like that older, um, less modern manipulation, mm -hmm. more of that wine philosophy versus wine product. Yeah. And I think this wine reflects it. I think it does too. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear all that, like the filtration and like all that, like how you it's like you have it down to a science, how you really like it to get more of that flavor in there. So, yeah. And, yeah. and, and that, that's parodying Rob. I mean, he taught me that and I believe in that. And 
you know, I've had the family, it's only been a couple of times, but, you know, they participated on the bottling line. You know, often I'll be the guy that's dumping all the glass on the bottling line. I always like to participate. I participate in uh, organ harvest because uh, I think the biggest thing I've learned about coming from more of a sales and marketing background to a production background, to me, the greatest challenge in, in wine or one of the greater challenges in winemaking. First of all, I think people don't realize how much physical manual labor yeah. is it? These guys and gals in the cellar, I mean, they, they work and they work extraordinarily hard. And I don't think we give them enough credit mm. for the things that they, they do. With that being said, harvest is about logistics and the 21, I remember we brought fruit in. It was a Monday. I want to say it was like September 15th, which was very early for our philosophy of when to pick. And one of the reasons we did so is we didn't want that wine to get over its skis in terms of its sugar level, in terms of bricks. So there was a decent acid base there and we didn't want that wine to be flabby. But then when you, one has to think, it's like, okay, well, we have this wine then it's a warm site in Yamhill Carlton. We know what that flavor component is going to be. All of that is in take is taken into consideration. Then it's what tanks are open. How many people do you have working that day? Can you find someone to pick the fruit? Does the, the grower have the time to help and oversee picking of the fruit. And so the logistics is extraordinarily important in making a decent bottle of wine. Oh yeah. If totally. you're going more on the wine side versus wine product. Right. Right. So how, um, what's like your biggest, like the biggest thing that you've seen, like the industry, like change, what would you say? Like any other industry, I think in the United States, you continue to see consolidation. So in 30 years, like I'll give you an example. When I was at first a supplier, you know, working for uh, a winery and just getting my feet wet. And as I mentioned, this was in North Carolina. I think I had 13 distributors in the state of North Carolina that I called on, all family owned, regional specific. So Asheville, Charlotte, Wilmington, uh, just as an example. And now if I was calling on those distributors for the same brand, there's one distributor. Mm. Wow. So that has uh, transpired very quickly. So you now have distributors, the larger ones that I think one of them is roughly 20, 21 billion in revenue. The other one I think is mid teens, like 15, 16, they continue to consolidate. So you've also seen uh, laws change where just like in Tennessee, wine goes from uh, independent retail to grocery store. And that's happened in several states, Tennessee, Colorado, uh, Oklahoma, I could continue on. And so for, Smaller wineries, you know, independent retail, in my mind, is the opportunity for, if you will, incubation and trial. Like, you know, if you and TJ walk in and I'm sitting in an independent retailer and you have to buy your wine there and I'm tasting, I may have an opportunity to taste you on Kate Arnold Willamette Valley Pinot Noir 2021 vintage. And that's different in grocery stores. Not necessarily worse, just different. There are some uh, grocery stores that allow tastings, but there's also been consolidation in a grocery store. So your purchasing points, if you will, are being reduced. Mm -hmm. And so hence, a lot of the smaller wineries uh, are continuing to apply focus on uh, direct to consumer. And I think that is one avenue. I think export is, is another. And then I will say I was, uh, I, I say this with a great level of pride. I was fortunate enough, you know, Katie and I, the, how we started this, we saved money uh, from my consulting. Uh, and one of the entities that I helped start uh, wasn't my idea. I just was uh, provided a lot of, let's say, the legwork 
was something referred to as the independent distributor network. So it's a collection of independent wine and spirit wholesalers throughout the country that uh, are in essence, the antithesis of the, the larger conglomerate distributors that are locally grounded, right? Taxes stay here. They participate in local philanthropy. And that was important for me because I think that ultimately is going to be something that will be important for smaller wineries and distilleries as well, which inevitably to me creates a better consumer choice. And for mm -hmm. me, it's all about consumer choice. Yeah, I think so too. And I mean, I know he's dealt with some distributors too, and he just can tell like some of the ones that are like bigger, have the bigger accounts. They don't have as much time to focus on some of the smaller people in their opinion. Like, you know, they're really like, they're like, oh, we're going to go to this where there's they have way more wines that they're selling versus right. here. So, it, and they won't spend as much time with you, maybe. So that's right. I don't know. And you know, as I say, just because you're big doesn't mean you're bad. Just because you're small right. doesn't mean you're good. But there's they're demonstrably different, right? Yeah. And you know, I, I like to, I would like to always ensure that the consumer has the opportunity to try all the different wines out there, so they can come up with what they like and get more exposure to all these different wines and wine varietals. You know, one of the impacts that I find interesting in terms of size of winery is, is the agricultural side, which we don't talk about a lot, right? So for example, within our portfolio, we have a Cabernet Franc. Uh, we produce a Gamay Noir. Now these, really good. Th these varietals um, don't have a lot of acreage under vine, as we say, but if I'm a big company, and I have the lion's share of, let's say, Cabernet, why do I want to go and invest in Cabernet Franc and create a competitor for something that I already have the majority of the competition? Right. Right? So the rough numbers are there's about 425 million cases of wine sold in the U.S. on, a, on an annual basis, and about th a third of that is uh, imported wine, right? Imports are... Uh, more relevant, if you, if you will, like in the Northeast, right? Just because the heritage and the culture of the Northeast, um, perhaps less so in other states. And But if you look at roughly like 280 million cases remaining, if I counted off, off the top 10, there would be very little left in terms of opportunity for Kate Arnold Wines and all these other wine companies. And I think in order to keep any industry healthy, not just the wine industry, it's about diversity in mm. terms of mm -hmm. product portfolio. Mm -hmm. You know, a winemaker taught me this one time, and I love the phrase, you know, we've been producing Neapolitan for years, chocolate, strawberry, vanilla, mm -hmm. Chardonnay, Cabernet, Pinot Noir. Mm. And so that's what I'm very uh, proud of is we have, a, for example, a, a vineyard on the east side of Willamette Valley, so Valley Floor, uh, two young, very energetic uh, brothers that planted the vineyard themselves. They went to Oregon State. I mean, they make wine themselves. They literally soup to nuts. They do it all. And they're fantastic people. And their work ethic is um, perhaps on the side of maniacal, which I can appreciate. And they had a couple of acres that uh, weren't planted. I said, put it in Gamay Noir mm. and I'll buy it from you. And so I'm a proponent of, of those different varietals. And I think the other thing is, is that I have a, a friend of a friend that um, uh, manages a vineyard. And I think he's part owner in it that's uh, closer towards the Columbia Gorge, higher elevation. Uh, and uh, I think north facing, if my memory serves, and has planted several different varietals because one of the things we haven't talked about today is how we prepare from a climate perspective in order to continue to be able to produce wine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I always tell the story, 17 was the Napa Valley fires. A lot of that smoke actually went to Southern Oregon, right? That's about six hours away, roughly a drive. And then 18, uh, it impacted Kate Arnold wine. We lost, I think it was about half our Sauvignon Blanc in Lake County to a fire. 
maybe a third. I don't remember the exact number. I mean, truly, we took some of the fruit off. Um, we fermented it early just to see what it would smell like. And it smelled like we, and you guys know what I'm talking about. Like when you go to a, a, like a, like a bonfire and you sit out by the fire all, all day and then you smell your clothes the next day, that's what that Sauvignon Blanc smelled oh, like. Oh, that wow. smoke taint on Yeah. 19 was the coldest cold snap, I believe, in, uh, in Washington State history. But I, if it wasn't the coldest cold snap, what happened, long story short, is um, cold weather was coming in very quickly. And so we had to get uh, fruit off the vine very quickly. So um, that was a challenge. Uh, 20, vintage looked great up until what was it? Probably a month, six weeks before. And I just uh, got in our apartment in Oregon because that's where kind of our base of operation is. That's my center when I'm out West. And uh, with that being said, I can show you a picture from my apartment, eight o'clock in the morning, no embellishment. I think I may have shown it to mm -hmm. you, Kelsey. And it looked like it was midnight. Ash on the car, all the drive-through coffee uh, uh, shops had closed because of the air quality. The people working in them couldn't breathe. And th that's an impact, obviously, that's uh, multifaceted, right? It's not just about the wine industry, but there is obviously an impact the wine industry. The 21 vintage of, the, of this uh, uh, this wine that we're drinking today, the Willamette Valley Pinot Noir from Kate Arnold. It was July. And I remember I was going to meet, uh, I think it was the Paradis family out on the east side of the Willamette and it was 118 degrees. Oh my gosh. Wow. And I grew up in Alabama, so I know what hot is. And if that had lasted much longer, and I can't remember exactly how long it lasted, but we may have not had a harvest. Right. 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 And so 22, um, as I was telling you earlier in March, you had bud break was very early for the Willamette Valley of Oregon. And then we had all this snow and frost. And so that impacted, uh, the fruit and we're just going to continue to see that. Yeah. And so we need to figure out what we're planning in terms of varietals. Are those varietals going to be able to withstand the new climate in which, um, we live in and how are we going to change our, our farming? Are we going to continue to irrigate? Are we going to have to go to dry farming, mm -hmm. which a lot of Oregon is dry farmed, but you know, that's much harder to do in California. Uh, easier, I would suggest overall in, in uh, Washington state. But again, that's my opinion, but all these things we need to take into consideration, yeah. but it's truly becoming much more difficult to put wine in the bottle. And one of the reasons that we're exporting is I want to start to create some relationships. Um, you know, turn, always turn the negative into a positive, right? Well, the South coast of England, right? Produces pretty quality sparkling. Yeah, wine now. That, yep. That's you guys, I'm sure have had some, mm -hmm. but what kit Kate Arnold wines import into this country in order to offset the year that I come to you guys and we have a podcast. I'm like, guys, I couldn't make any Pinot Noir this year. Right. 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 At the end of the day, I have to have fruit in order to have wine to sell in order to have revenue to yeah. <laughs> exist as a company. And so we're really looking at, it, and I think that kind of tells volumes to the consumer of what we face moving forward. Wow crazy, isn't it? It is crazy. So crazy. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't like roller coasters, don't join the wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were mentioning, you know, the other varietals that you have, Cab Franc and what, yeah. So which, what other varietals do you guys? Yeah. So have? within the lineup right now, uh, we have, in terms of whites, we have a Samuel Blanc, which I'm a, a big fan of. I'm also a fan of Riesling. And I think Riesling has a bad reputation in the United States because more often than not, people think it's you know, sweet. extraordinarily sweet. But right. you guys know, depending on where you're sourcing it from, how it's produced, there's so many different um, uh, taste components of Riesling and how it ages in the bottle. And 
Um, this particular uh, Riesling that we produce always starts off with like really cool apple and pear aromas. Mm -hmm. And we're on the 21 vintage right now, about to transition to 22. And the 21 vintage now has like a little bit of almost like kind of cool petrol mm, kind yeah. of thing mm -hmm. going on. And that's the only wine that we ha have some residual sugar in. And the fermentation has stopped. But we, some of the fruit is brought in early because... You know, every week, week and a half that, that those grapes stay out, the bricks can jump like 1.5 bricks per week, something like that. And uh, with that being said, because that fruit was brought in earlier, it has a strong acid structure. That acid structure cleans up the viscosity and the sweetness of the wine. And it really finishes clean. But to give you an idea, it's roughly 10 grams per liter of sugar. Well, what does that mean? Well, a Coca-Cola has 100, I think, or to 110 grams per liter sugar. Mm -hmm. That's what I read mm -hmm. on the Google machine. So it's got to be right, right? <laughs> right. right. Gosh, the internet doesn't lie. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Lord have mercy. Come on. Well, uh, why don't you tell us uh, before we wrap this up, what, what the future, what do you feel like the future holds for Kate Arnold? Well, you know, to, um, I would say this with, uh, you know, t pursuant to TJ's uh, question about wines, you know, we have those two white wines, uh, you know, Cabernet, Cabernet Franc. Uh, you make a little Gamay Noir. We made some Tempranillo, but the, the barrels were corked on the 21 vintage, so we couldn't ultimately sell that. I think the future holds this. Several of the vineyards that we use to make the, the Willamette Valley blend uh, are of the quality, like Hershey Vineyard, Bright Vineyard, uh, Daffodil Hill Vineyard, and Eola Amity Hills. We're going to continue to make some small single vineyards, 100, you know, four barrels to six barrels, 100 to 150 cases. And I think continue to focus in on making our wines better. I'm never going to say that we've made the perfect wine. I always think there's pursuit to increase quality and get better at what we do. And at some point we may come out with uh, another brand, but what I'd like to do is just continue to focus on creating relationships that I've had over the, the, the 30 years and continue to create a foundation of those relationships with the distributors and the, and the consumers and continue to proselytize about wine and what a great beverage it is mm -hmm. and that it should be more incorporated into our everyday life yeah and mm -hmm. i'll be doing that from suitcase to suitcase and hotel to hotel <laughs> literally you just try to drink your water so i don't know if you want to drink that. No, it's okay. like i said i'm a cat so it's all good Oh man! Well, this has been so fun, and people can get this wine in, in Nashville. I was going right? to say, where can they find it in Nashville? Well, so a lot of places. Our distributor, Ajax Turner, here has done a phenomenal job, and so a shout out to them. Yeah, uh, very much appreciate their their efforts. But on our website, uh, and we always promote. We we first always promote to buy local, right, as opposed to buy from us direct to consumer. But on our website, we have a geolocator. And in that geolocator, you can find all types of different uh, stores that, that uh, purchase our wines throughout the Nashville metro area. And as I always tell people, if let's say a store carries Kate Arnold Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, but you had Kate Arnold Oregon Pinot Noir in, a, in wherever, a different state in a restaurant. Yeah, if you call an independent retailer and ask them uh, to bring it in for you and you buy a couple of bottles, they're always more than happy to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very cool. Thank you so much, Gene, for this talking was, to thank us. You guys. This was an honor. Oh, uh, yeah. So, we really so feel honored to have you in our house yeah. and yeah. to well, have look, you we'll, trying the wine with us. Yeah, we'll do it again. We'll, we'll do some other topic and we'll keep going. But I, look, I appreciate you all. I think you guys approach this in a, in a fun, uh, which wine should be fun, mm. right? And let's not get too serious. 
and in a very educational manner. And so my hat's off to you. We, we need more Nashville wine duos Aww. throughout the country. Seriously. Thank you. Right? No, I appreciate that. Yeah. Means a lot. Means a lot. So, well, cheers. Yeah, we thanks, guys. Yes. Cheers. 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 Cheers.